All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. So welcome to part three of our show today on the Mayan mystery. And you're on a talking role now, so we'll just continue right where we dropped off. Sure. Yeah, let's see how it goes. Yeah, as long as you can hear me and I'm not humming and hawing too much or reaching too much. Yeah, but uh, you know what? I'll just... I'll, if you I'll hear me reaching too hard for a fact, because a lot of this is just... All of it is off the top of my head. Right. Um jump in with a comment or a question so I can kind of go in. Well, that's what I'll, I'll try avoiding because when I talk, it can't be removed. Oh, okay. As long as I'm not saying too much, I guess it's okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I talked over you there. Yeah, I don't hear when you talk over me because when you're at a laptop, and I forgot to say this, but what happens... I don't know why it is like this, and I hate it mm. because editing becomes a pain. Mm. But what happens is that your sound disappears every time I talk. Oh, okay, okay. Just, just when I uh, make sound, as soon as I shut up, you, your sound comes back. And that means that the listeners will hear many times that you say something. Mm-hmm. Say you are speaking now and not me. What I'm saying now is really what you are saying. And it will come off like this. <laughs> Did you hear that? Mm-hmm. Uh, it will come off. Like this? Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty annoying because you can't hear the whole sentence. So that would probably have happened a couple of times. But look. It has, we've talked over each other once or twice so far, but it's really been out of Yeah, well, I fixed that in editing because it's two different channels. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing. I'm going to talk over you as soon as you have the mic. So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So my mic and my um, yeah, pointless. Yeah, I'll just mute this part of this channel because okay. when I'm uh, vaping and making noises yeah. <laughs> while you're talking, that's gone. Uh-huh. People think I sit like a Sunday school kid paying full attention, right? But but that's because I can mute the line in editing. Uh-huh. That's why you're not going to mute the line while we talk. I hate that stuff. It's so out of date it's it's the old radio thing right. you i can always tell you know it's so funny some guests maybe one in ten yeah they are they are coming from the radio world because they do that they mute it during the conversation it becomes so artificial mm. i want us to talk like we do now right yeah you just said you just said mm, and now you said yeah <laughs> you wouldn't say that if we muted a line while one of us talked you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And those yeah. small those small things are organic. They make the conversation come alive. Yeah, I've done radio. Well, I don't know if you know this, but I started a radio station. Yeah, I just read. Long time ago. And, uh, yeah, we never did any muting. Yeah. I mean, we weren't really professional, per se. I mean, we weren't doing commercial radio, right? We were, uh, we were just dicking around and yeah. kind of getting away with it but you know we didn't do that we had we had full equipment oh we had full radio equipment we had a full studio we had three full studios actually i mean we went through to raise funds and everything so that was kind of the outcome of that was getting the full studio so when we did do the radio and we actually went live uh we had everything was it local radio yes local community co-op radio 
Same here. I I used to also work for local community co-op radio. Really? Okay. We also had full uh, equipment, uh, serious equipment and full studio. And we were not serious either. <laughs> well, <laughs> we did not mute either. We probably talked on top of each other. I won't say we were serious, but we weren't. You know, we weren't trained to be professional radio uh, people at a, I mean, there are schools for that and I didn't go to one. I just went to the school of co-op radio where we essentially turned all the buttons on and went for it. Uh, Yeah, same here. Uh, Are are there still schools for that stuff? Maybe there is. I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh, But it used to be. Yeah, there used to be. Uh, When I grew up, there was. Mm. And when we started the radio station, there was. So that was in 94, 95. By the time uh, it actually got to 24 hours a day, it was two, or it was 1999. So we went through a whole, you know, series of things with the CRTC, which is a regulatory board in Canada, to be um, permitted to do that. So it was quite a yeah. professional process getting the thing off the ground. But I won't say we were that professional on the air. Yeah. I mean, some people were more than me. I was I was doing two different shows, and one was kind of like our show or the, your show, sorry, and uh, the other was kind of just a rant. I think I told you that. Mm. Mm-hmm. But uh, I suggest um, we let's do part two now. Mm-hmm. So you were still recording? Yeah, I'm still. It just records until I hang oh. up. You sneaky guy! Yeah. Tell me more about your inner more secrets. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, the period of the Aztecs and the Aztec conquest, like the the actual subjugation of the Aztecs, produced a lot of information. So when Diego de Landa arrived and he was going to essentially look for this evidence of Christ, he knew that the only place he could look is or was in the, uh, these codices. Now, there were thousands of these codices at that time. Now there's only three, maybe four, Mayan codices. Yeah, and the one I sent you that they just discovered, or not just discovered, but just validated. Mm-hmm. The one from the Olympics. I, I don't know if it can be called a codice. It's, I think it's writing on... Uh, bark paper. Bark, yeah. Yeah, so that, that could be. I mean, I haven't looked at it. It could be. If it is, then I'm going to definitely incorporate it into the uh, book. But they, they had literal book fires, right? Yeah, they did, yeah. So this gets into that. So Diego de Landa arrives, he has this edict from the Pope, he's supposed to go look for evidence of Christ in these codices, he discovers that these codices are the, have the nature that they have, which is this psychonautic um, uh, capacity, and mm-hmm. he has to ingratiate himself to the these various orders and more or less pose as somebody who's uh, there to protect them as a protector against, you know, the encomenderos, which are these people who are essentially the uh, leftovers of the, of the conquest era who have enslaved the Mayan people so that they can mine for silver because there was no gold mm. and have more or less resolved to live the rest of their lives in what is now today the Yucatan. Uh, and so he had to come in and kind of pretend that he was there to protect the Maya from the uh, abuses of these encomenderos, as well as dealing with the interruption of lifestyle and hegemony of the encomenderos by by these priests, right? So there was a lot of politics and spiritual aspects that he had to negotiate while seizing power of his own order in that region, and then, of course, executing on his plan without telling anybody. Mm. 
So this is this is more or less the the setup for the end of the land. So he does become a heretical priest by virtue of learning and and becoming uh, a master in these uh, various types of um, uh, shamanistic sciences. And he does so by capturing some and torturing them for information. He does others by virtue of relationship and political alliance and spiritual alliance. Mm. He does a lot of things to achieve his goal. And that's what I meant by corruption. And his own questioning, increased questioning and concern for the integrity of his own soul, simply by virtue of uh, having been tapped by the Pope and provided for uh, absolution in advance. Now, when he starts getting into the storylines uh, and, and having these psychonautic adventures, he is more or less fixated on the ninth century because that is when the um, uh, civilization was at its peak, uh, when the sciences, the psychonautic sciences and the sciences of the various orders were at their peak. And he snips out uh, a series of mystics that um, whose lives and whose actions and whose the consequences of their actions precipitate the uh, collapse of the mind civilization in that ninth century. So that's the basic framework, and you know, without getting into the the true history of the uh, of the um, uh, you know the ninth century, you know, because there's hundreds of kings, hundreds of queens, and then of course a lot of fictional characters that I create, which are more or less the common people, mm. in order to flesh out the stories. But that's all true history. Mm. It's all true history that I'm, that I'm exploring. <clears throat> and from the perspective of, of approximately 40 different major city-states, so it's quite a complex group of politics. And what time span are you operating in? It jumps back and forth between... So he's constantly looking for information and context. And so by virtue of the fact that he's able to get a hold of this codices versus that codices or this group of codices, he's jumping around in time. So I cover components uh, that... Uh, jump all the way from, um, you know, about uh, 500 BC in the Mirador Basin, all the way through um, the, the core history of the Paten region, which is essentially the, the proliferation of writings and uh, archival history that is about 450 to uh, 909 AD. So brilliant. This time travel uh, alibi really opens so many doors. Well, I mean, he was the last person in factual history to read all this stuff. He was the last and, person. And do you, do you have to invent uh, codexes, or, or do we know the names and, and contents of lost? I have to invent them, but I only invent them around real characters. Right. You so know. we don't even know what many of these contained. No, but we do know what the actual history of these, these shaman kings and queens are because that history is inscribed on their pyramids. Mm. And it's a, so I'm taking what is inscribed in the pyramids and I'm fleshing them out in the form of codices. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's the true history of the collapse of the Maya in the ninth century built in with this or baked in to this uh, psychonautic capacity, which again is not a fiction. It's just a, a literalization of a, of a cosmological belief system. So, so why, I mean, couldn't they understand the books? Because the normal thing that the Vatican does is that it makes sure to get, uh, acquire copies of their own and then burn everything else. 
but that didn't happen here. Mm -hmm. Well, that might have been true in Europe, but not in the colonial era because things were a little more wild west out here. The resources were a lot uh, fewer, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for making copies of codices, you'd have to have things that they didn't have. And the Franciscans were not known for writing things down. Mm. They were not a literate order, per se, because of their um, their uh, loyalty to poverty, green poverty. Yeah, meekness and simplicity. Yeah, mm-hmm. easy living. Yeah, well, <laughs> I wouldn't say it was easy living, uh, not in the colonial period. No, it's a reference to a lifestyle. Simple living is maybe the word. Very but, simple, yeah, yeah, very simple. I would just say impoverished. That would be the, uh, the true... Um, crux of that order is that they have a, a, a you know they, they they make an oath to live in poverty mm. right and that's to be uh, as close to the way of living of christ but this order of exorcists that you mentioned is that your invention because i never heard that about a, them that is an invention but it's an invention based on inferred history we're talking about the peak era of the spanish inquisition throughout europe Right. 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 And so we're talking about people who are trained in exorcists. Uh, There's a a, uh, rich history of exorcism uh, throughout that period. And so almost every initiate uh, who was sent off into a foreign land was was at least rudimentally trained. It had part of basic training, if you will, Mm. um, in exorcists, in exorcism. Uh, so it was part of their theology, it was part of their catechism, it was part of their lifestyle, and they knew that when they came over here, or anywhere, uh, that they were going to encounter uh, you know, what they encountered. And so there were people who wrote documents and sent them back, and, and these were used as training manuals in, in a lot of these um, uh, you know, schools, uh, where these novices were training to you know, prepare themselves to go off to foreign lands. What about... Uh Everyone's favorite antagonists, the dogs of God. Did they have a big role, the Dominicans? The dogs of God. Yeah, the Dominicans. Oh, the Dominicans. Yes, they did. Well, more so in the in the Aztecs. Because they they are they are really. I mean, Franciscans are often full of mercy and empathy, <laughs> right? But yeah. Dominicans not so much. <laughs> well, Diego de Landa really breaks that mold. Um, you know, he performed. A rapacious inquisition and um, what they call an auto de fe, which is an act of faith, essentially is where you get to torture and, uh, right. and burn you know, people. And in this case, they used strapado. Are you familiar with strapado? What's that? Strapado. What's that? It's a type of torture. It's where you bind oh. the person's hands behind their back and then you hoist them. Right. And then you place waist, uh, weights on their feet and, you know, essentially rip their arms out. And this was their preferred use of torture. Now, to sort of bring about the story of Diego de Landa is that as the primary antagonist in the story, he goes about finding this evidence of Christ, has all these first encounters. His paradigm is completely blown away because he learns that all these he partic- not only learns of, but participates intimately in these acts of heresy, which are essentially to perform the rituals mm-hmm. of, the, of the Mayan priesthood in order to achieve his goal. And uh, when he does, he doesn't get the outcome that he's looking for because it's not all wrapped up in a bow for him. And it blows away all of his uh, preconceived notions of Christ and what they were doing there. And, of course, he has to make a decision, either believe what he's 
change his ways, right? Or uh, burn everything. And so in 1562 in the village of Mani, which is a Mayan village that I went and lived in shortly, or for a short period of time, uh, he collected all the books. He performed uh, an inquisition that compelled those Mayans at that time, which, is, which were under the, um, uh, the old king of the Tutelche and his, um, you know, his, his, his order. And they tortured somewhere around 15,000 Mayans, killed 5,000 of them, burnt anywhere from the, the archives and the eyewitness. This is history, right? Yeah, this is real history. So the first person uh, histories speak of various numbers of codices, anywhere from 16 codices to 16,000 codices. And it's really difficult Jeez. to get a, a straight answer out of the first person histories of those who took part in this? Because it wasn't just a, uh, you know, a ecclesiastic order. It was a sec- the seculars had to participate. I mean, he performed it according to what he interpreted as the law, mm. and so he was protected by this. Uh, when you know, eventually he was um, called to answer for. It. Mm. So he he did perform this offer de fe, he did destroy anywhere from 17 or 16 codices to 16,000 codices. And so I leveraged that fact in history uh, to build up this narrative that he is trying to get the last few codices relevant to this goal that he's looking to achieve. And when he finally gets it and he gets the information, has these encounters, it, it destroys him spiritually because he essentially has to accept the fact that he is now sold his soul, and he also realizes that he is a pawn in a larger game that is going on between these cosmic forces of the underworld and the other world above and the various shaman kings in the, in the history that he's encountering and sort of jumping in and out of their minds. Mm. Probably closer to 16,000, because if a culture in the first place can read and write, if they produce books, <laughs> why would they produce like 20 books, right? Yeah, for sure. And I, don't I mean, over over a long span of time, even though they are based on oral and based on inscriptions and other ways of manifesting knowledge, like through pyramids and, and whatnot, stones. Yeah. At well, least I think in the case of the Maya, they actually had a history of of taking these 9th century or 8th century or 7th century or even earlier codices and duplicating them over time. So they could be maintained. Because I think the lifespan of a lot of these codices, uh, if you know, as far as their use, um, was probably about 150 to 200 years. And during that time, they would need to be duplicated and preserved so that this history could be preserved in continuity. Yeah, but but I bet they had more than 20 topics to read, uh, write about. So. <laughs> Oh no, they had thousands for sure. I'm thinking sixteen thousand is is closer to reality. Sure, and I'm sure that he never got his hands on on the bulk of them. And then, of course, there were other monks uh, in other places that were doing the same thing. I right, just focus right. on on uh, Delanda specifically because he's such a well understood character. And the fact is that when he performed this ritual, he kind of broke the law. And after that occurred, the first bishop of Yucatan arrived and told him, well, you, you did this thing and you shouldn't have done this thing. And of course, it was a political shitstorm, right? Mm. Uh, a lot of people hated the land at that point and wanted to get rid of him. And so the Bishop Terrell, who arrived, sent the land back to Spain to the Council of the Andes to answer for these alleged crimes against humanity. And during that process, he wrote his own book in his own defense. And that is one of the keystones 
that was used mm. to later uh, figure out how to decipher the Mayan script. So it's funny how he comes to be such an important resource in the eventual uh, cracking of the Mayan code and our ability to even read the script uh, of the ninth century or, or the post-classic era on these Mayan pyramids and in their pottery. And yet he was the one who more or less erased Mayan history. Mm. So it's an interesting dichotomy. I found it very compelling. And so he's, he's the main antagonist. The protagonists are many, and it obviously follows a sequence of codices that he comes upon that he thinks is going to lead him to the truth of this Mayan Christ. So he goes one through another, and this is how the books roll out. He seizes upon them, and in the first book, it's really the story of Katun, which isn't really a name of a person, it's a name of a time period. Mm. I mentioned it, but it's essentially the name that is given to this character because he's a nameless character. Mm. He comes from a small village that exists between the two superpowers of the ninth century, which is Tikal and Kalakmu. And they live on opposite ends of the Mirador Basin, pretty much. Uh, so one is deeper into, um, like both these cities are in modern-day Guatemala, essentially. Mm, mm. And, and uh, well, Calakmul is technically in Mexico, but it's it's within that same biosphere that is the uh, Maipatan that, that um, Tikal and Calakmul and the Mirador Basin all exist. So you can get to it from Mexico. It's in the middle of a protected area. It takes a long time to get there. It's really fun to go there, though, because you can climb all the pyramids. There's nobody there. They're massive. And um, barely anybody sees them with the naked eye because they're so hard to reach. But it's such an incredible place. And then Tikal mm. is, is a much better known, more uh, visited place in terms of um, you know the Mayan ruins. And it's in Guatemala. So it's still more difficult to get there than, say, going to Chichen Itza, which is a UNESCO-protected site, more so because of its location and its importance as a tourist destination. Whereas Tikal is just, it's a gigantic place. Mm. You know, there's at least six pyramids there that, that go above 45 meters tall. Anyway, he lives between when, these two. When, when you say when you say that they have scanned and found uh, lots of other uh, th that that's buried pyramids, right? Yeah, these are the ones that live in the Mirador Basin that are part of the pre-classic era. Because uh, they've done the same with um, with Egypt. There's a uh, lots of lots of buried uh, pyramids all over the place, mm -hmm. which is not excavated. But I I, I read uh, recently that. When it comes to the Mayan, not even what they have discovered is fully uh, excavated. I, I think the majority is not excavated and investigated at all. Yeah, well, to put it in perspective, Tikal has been under excavation since the 50s. Yeah. And only about 5% of what exists within that city is excavated. Mm -hmm. So they've had a continuous effort to unearth and restore the central area of Tikal since the 50s, which they've done, and it's a massive area. What if but, you, imagine if you used some of the billions we are using for war and destruction <laughs> to excavate the globe and, re, and construct some kind of authentic history. Yeah, well, that is the objective. That would be something, huh? Yeah, that's the objective, and that's what um, compelled... <laughs> Whose objective? <laughs> uh, Mayan academia. <laughs> right, right. That's, that's their objective. They they want to finance that. Uh, perfect case is Richard D. Anson, 
who for the last 20 years has been the head of the excavation of El Mirador. And he had to go and scrape and pull and, and, and claw for money enough to finance his LIDAR mm. of the entire basin. And, of course, what did he discover? Hundreds yeah. of cities that live within this uh, thick um, biosphere of jungle. But the question is, why is it buried? We know why it's buried in Egypt. Uh, no, it's not buried. It's just under forest. Right, right. It's under the forest. Once it's abandoned, the forest took over. and, and it's, So it's just natural growth. It's just... Yeah, you can't see a thing. Mm. Right? You, go, you go to the Mayapatan region, it is a thick rainforest. Mm -hmm. And unless you use LIDAR technology, I mean, it would take centuries to figure out what's there. Mm -hmm. You'd have to cut down the entire place. And of course, you don't want to do that. That's an yeah. ecological disaster. And that's one of the things that uh, Richard is trying to do with this LIDAR technology is compel more funding to protect the area. Mm. So there's a lot of goodness. I know there's a lot of badness in academia everywhere, but mm. I, I really have to say, like, even though some of the um, orthodoxy that we experience in a lot of these other academic fields is creeping into, you know, this, this um, Mayan archaeology and anthropology, it's by and large currently run by people who are more of uh, the mindset that you and I have, which is to unearth the facts, get down to the bolts of it, and also um, properly distribute funds in order to, to, to do that. Yeah, I guess it helps that the descendants are still around, right? It's different in places like Egypt, say, because it's a completely new people and culture sit sitting on yeah, it. Yeah, there's a disconnection. Yeah, there's a huge disconnection. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. I would agree with that. I mean, with six million uh, Mayans, they do have an influence on local politics. Mm. Yeah, that would be one of the key contributors for that fact. I think it's also just a key contributor is that there is so much interest, um, you know, from the public. Yeah. Uh, you know, Richard Hoagland, mm -hmm. he did some measurements on, I don't know, maybe it was the Pyramid of the Sun or one of those. Uh, I'm not too familiar, but mm -hmm. he, he got some good uh, results with, um, you know, torsion uh, measurements. What are torsion measurements? Okay, torsion, because you're familiar with uh, Joseph Farrell, right? Yep. So, so he's rewritten. Uh, torsion is really, it's just a question of terminology. This is launched by the Russians. Um, what's his name? Um, Korsarev. But of course, they are exploring. Uh, it's basically hyperdimensional physics. And, and that can be called whatever, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Ancient Greeks called it ether. So, but it's uh, and it's what Reich called orgon. Mm. It's just the name of this hyperdimensional energy field. How do they measure? Which it? is connect, which is connected to pyramid. He actually actually explains in my interview with him how he measures it. It's an interesting method. So check it out. Mm. I think I've listened to that, and I, I can't picture that in my mind. I've listened. You, to you did listen. Oh, yeah, I've listened to all of the interviews you've had. Oh, cool. Hoagland that I'm aware of. I've gone through almost everything on your, on your site. <laughs> yeah, so this we made a video for this, mm -hmm. and uh, the video maker illustrated uh, that part so it would be easier to understand. He used one of these old uh, school... He, he, he's made his own machine mm. to do this. 
and he used one of these old school clocks as part of the Process. wiring. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, look into that. But have you visited these pyramids? Yeah, I've been to all of them. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, everything that I explore in my novel, I've been to numerous times. Mm. It's been part of the uh, lengthy process of research and development. <laughs> I wouldn't feel confident. So you spent a lot of time in Mexico. Yeah, I did. Yeah, of course I have. And mm. I'm here now, of course. Yeah. Um, I think there's just no way to write about this stuff unless you say, for instance, one of my um, most cherished memories is going to sleep in this village of Mani where this horrible atrocity took place at the hands of Diego de Landa. But waking up at about four in the morning to the most beautiful sound of a bird, I'd never heard such a sound in my life. And it, it sounded as though it was singing underwater. And I, I don't kid you, this bird sang for a good you know, 15, 20 minutes, and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And the funny thing is, the soon as, it, as soon as it stopped singing, the rest of every other living creature that existed in the area just exploded into a cacophony. And this, this, so this bird had the honor of being the rooster. This bird is a magical being in my cosmology, as you can imagine, right? And, and so this is how I learned about it and, and its importance in the story of the hero twins and everything else. You can't find out these things unless you go and actually spend time yeah. in these places. You might be able to read about it or because I'd never read about this bird and never even heard of it. Then in the morning, I was completely uh, mesmerized by it. And and not only did this uh, bird sing, and the rest of them waited and probably listened to this bird uh, sing every morning, mm. it was repeated every morning. Wow. It really was wow. So he had a, yeah, he was the, what's it called in English? Um, so he was the choir leader. Yeah, but speaking of uh, torsion, I just recall that you've been involved in free energy stuff. So right. you, you should actually be aware of it. <laughs> oh, the torsion. Well, I am aware of torsion fields in relation to electrical magnet, uh, magnetism. Right. Okay, now we're talking. And of course, I am, I am uh, familiar with solid mechanics, which is the torsion. This is a twisting of an object over time uh, because it's some sort of... Okay, okay. So what, what is it that you were uh, not aware of or asking about in, in connection with Hoagland? Well, if it's Hoagland, then it's something completely original. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's not, he's, not, he's probably not measuring PSI. Uh, or torsion fields on a on a pyramid. He's probably measuring the electromagnetic field, and so I, you know, I'd never heard of that. I want to know if I want to understand what his what his discoveries were. Well, when you say electromagnetic field, which frequency is, are you referring to? Because some people call the whole spectrum electromagnetic. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I don't know what yeah, spectrum he was dealing with. Yeah, but obviously torsion would be on a higher frequency than what we would associate with electromagnetic. It would probably be beyond even gamma rays. And, and that's why I asked the question. <laughs> Right, so so so, but torsion is defined. It's not something he invented. It's something that's yeah. It's a common term. Yeah, yeah. So within that common uh, measurement that science has done, that's what he, he measured in the pyramids, and not just in general in the pyramids. It was some particular astronomical phenomenon mm -hmm. where I don't know something with the sun. I, I forgot. Go back and listen to it. But yeah, we could, of course, question how accurate is this how blah 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 but the concept is genuine 
Mm-hmm. So, well, I was so, just curious about the specifics because you know about the pyramid in Bosnia, right? And that whole, yeah, that whole yeah. exploration. And I, I'm familiar with him. I if, if it's a pyramid, do you, do you? Well, I talk to him on a regular basis, and I've been because I wanted to include him in my Legends of Lost Civilization series. So he and I have had an ongoing dialogue for a long time. So you think it is a pyramid? Well, there's a lot of evidence that it's a man-made concrete. Right? Concrete isn't, right. you know, it's man-made. Right. Mm. And and so what he's exposing is a man made concrete. Now, whether or not that entire structure is a uh, terraforming of an existing mound, let's say, mm. Mm. or a completely fabricated man made pyramid is is really the question, because mm. um, it doesn't conform on all sides to the typical um, criteria for a pyramid. It's a completely different However, geodetically, its association and, and relationship to other structures which are nearby is incontrovertibly man-made. Mm. You know, it continuously mirrors uh, these arrangements of pyramids that we see across all pyramid structures, whether they are in Giza or in the Maya lands or on Mars, <laughs> for instance. And did they make measure, measures there since you mentioned it? Well, he's made a different kind of measurement, which is essentially a, an energy beam that comes out of the top of the pyramid, which is not a torsion field, yeah, heard about that. but it's a it's an electromagnetic pulse that is coming out of uh, the very top of the pyramid on a frequent basis that tends to increase the further away from the pyramid you get, mm. which is very bizarre. It's usually the opposite. Yeah. Um, now, that's not a torsion field. Typically, a torsion field is if a, a structure is exposed to some sort of either magnetic or physical pressure, which has a torsion dynamic, you can usually measure its, its impact over time. Mm. Now, what Hoagland is measuring, and he's probably built some original, well, you pointed out he's built something original. Yeah. Uh, it probably means he's measuring a completely different type of torsion, and that's what I don't know. Uh, you know. uh, but he is aware, of course, of um, uh, the electromagnetic frequency. So I, I don't think he would call it torsion unless uh, that's what it was. Be- because uh, this, I think this was based on, you know, the film director Brian De Palma? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bruce De Palma was, okay. was his brother. And he, as you probably know, was uh, free energy Scientist. I didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. Brian, oh, you didn't know that. No, he. he no, was, I didn't know Brian De Palma's brother is a free energy uh, explorer. Yeah. No, he was uh, mysteriously killed, uh, or, or I mean, died. Mm. Uh, I forgot the story there. Probably mm. murdered. But anyway, uh, he. I think it's his angle Hoagland is into because he knew him. Mm-hmm. And do you know what so, he was dealing with? Yeah, it's the basic ones. Uh, I, I forgot what they're called. Pyramid of the Sun. Chichen Itza, Teotihuacan. I don't know. All those, every time you mentioned a place name yeah. down there, it's yeah. just a blur to me. <laughs> well, Teotihuacan is located just outside of Mexico City. Yeah. Okay. The listeners probably get more out of it, because, especially those from America. <laughs> but remember, we grown up in Europe. We learn even less about the America's mysteries mm-hmm. than you guys do, right? So this is, we could be talking about China for all I know. Every word you're using to describe a place, <laughs> uh, uh, a person, a uh, time period, every time it has a Mayan word, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. it just goes straight out my other ear, <laughs> which makes it very hard for me to have some kind of intelligible conversation about this with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, I wouldn't worry too much about that. I would just say that um, this is a world that you're going to find very interesting. And, oh, yeah, um, sure. But, um, but, but I do know about the pyramid, uh, the two main pyramids. Isn't it two twin pyramids or something in one of these big sites? Doesn't ring a bell. No, no, because well, every time I hear about the Mayan pyramids, it's about the same. Well, it's probably Chichen Itza then. Yeah, probably. Or, or it's Teotihuacan, which are completely different locations. One is in Mexico City, okay. and the other one is in uh, just outside of Cancun and Tulum, which are in the Mayan Riviera, which are much further south in the Gulf of Mexico. The interesting thing about Teotihuacan is that there is a lot of mystery about what culture built that and occupied that. Mm-hmm. And my Based on my research, I tend to believe that they were the same culture that built up and existed within the Mirador Basin. So it would take it back to at least 2000 BC in terms of the origin story of that culture. Um, and, you know, that is a megalithic site, uh, at least in the underneath, underlying parts of the structure. So again, it sort of lends itself to this idea that it was part of a pre-Diluvian civilization and that the Maya are the... Um, more or less the descendants of that, as well as their calendar. So okay, okay. that gives you some context. Right, right. So it seems uh, it was named the Pyramid of the Sun. There's a lot of Pyramids of the Sun. Is it in, is it uh, in Teotihuacan? Teotihuacan. Yeah, Teotihuacan. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, the Pyramid of the Sun is that megalithic site that exists just outside of, of uh, Mexico City. But the Aztecs right. themselves said was the city of the gods, and they didn't know who built it. Mm. Uh, and and when you get into the book by Peter Tompkins, which I recommend all your readers try and get a hold of, it's a very difficult book to obtain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Mysteries of the Mexican Pyramids. Maybe you know Peter Tompkins because he wrote The Secret Life of Plants. Right. Yes, that's a famous book. Right. Well, he wrote this book, Mysteries of the Mexican Pyramids, which focuses on the geodetic and astronomical arrangement of Teotihuacan. Tries to come up within the context of his thesis, the base measurement that they used to build and you know locate all these buildings and then how they relate to the astronomical phenomena that um so essentially he calls it a university for this the central university for this um uh, you know tripartite tripartite order of scientists of the mesoamerican animistic tradition mm. he thinks that's the university for that going back as far as 2000 bc you know, I, I read about how they have found pyramids there by using um, light waves, right? And mm-hmm. they found pyramids under pyramids, yeah, that's right. like uh, Russian uh, Matryoshka doll. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> is same that, here. Is that, is that what you were talking about earlier, about this chap, you know, who, is he one of those who found this uh, in Yucatan, I think, or wherever it is? Diego de Landa? <laughs> no, you, you wouldn't know him. He's dead, long gone. You talk about an <laughs> well, academician who... Oh, 
Yeah, the, you're talking about Peter Tompkins. Yeah, Peter Tompkins I was talking about. No, uh, or you're talking about Richard Hansen. Yes, I think. Uh, uh, Richard in the Mirador Basin used LIDAR technology to unearth the existence of hundreds of cities in the basin. We all know that all Cities, of, not pyramids. The cities are pyramids. So, oh, okay. Yeah, because all of their structures are pyramidal. Oh, okay. So their cities at the central region of every city in, in the Mayan or any of the Mesoamerican cultures or in the American cultures for that matter, are either mounds or pyramids. And when we're dealing with the, the, the peak of Mesoamerican culture, what exists in Teotihuacan or the Mirador Basin or the Paten of the Guatemala or the Yucatan, you're dealing with pyramidal culture. So every one of their cities is a pyramid structure arrangement. Mm. And so he found hundreds of cities that have within them hundreds of pyramids. Mm. So we're talking about thousands of pyramids that he's discovered in Mirador Basin alone. And uh, where was this? In Yucatan? This is the Mirador Basin. Mirador Basin, okay. I don't know where that is. Yeah, so the Mirador Basin, if you look that up, you'll see... Um, you know, pictures of Calakmul and El Mirador and Tikal, because they all exist within that region. Mm. But within the basin itself, which was this pre-classic culture, uh, there is a um, sort of a biosphere, a jungle that lives in there that's kind of a swampy land. And it has hundreds of cities inside of it that were abandoned all around 150 A.D. Mm. And then around that basin grew up this post or the central uh, this um, uh, middle classic period of city states, which uh, peaked in the ninth century and then was abandoned as well. Speaking of uh, submerged pyramids, uh, you probably are aware of the one outside of uh, Cuba. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting. Do you think that could be connected to Mayans? I think the Mayans and in general the whole of Mesoamerica as well as this pre-Diluvian culture that existed across America and is you know, evidenced by these megalithic sites were connected to a culture that is pre-Diluvian that was also pyramidal or astronomical in nature. Mm. So you're talking about… Yeah, obviously, obviously proto-Mayans because that many years ago it would be… So you're talking about Egypt, you're talking about… Um, uh, Angkor Wat, mm. you're talking about Teotihuacan, you're talking about the Mirador Basin, you're talking about this pyramidal culture uh, that existed all over the globe, yeah, from China. Uh, yeah, China, everywhere. They're all over the globe, but they all mm. exist within this very confined latitude of the equator. Mm. It's like a band of structures that exist within a very specific range of the equator all around the earth. Mm, mm. And that was the conclusion we came up with when we developed the uh, series uh, Legends of a Lost Civilization, is that we were going to explore indigenous legends that spoke of this and then use those legends as our entry point to recontextualize what these structures may have been. Have they found, do you know if they found any pyramids in Africa? Or is that the only, I, I, I don't mean obviously uh, in Egypt, but I mean like south uh, of Sahara. Not in the south, no. Not in the deep south, anyway. That's interesting. There are potential locations within the uh, what is today, say, Congo, right? The northern part of Congo. But that, again, is a completely carpeted with uh, jungle. Yeah. So you'd have to use LIDAR technology. You'd have to finance that and, and go and do it. Mm. 
But again, universities aren't interested in doing that kind of thing. There's also um, evidence of, of massive civilization in the South American region, in the area of, of the um, of the uh, Amazon jungle. It's called terra preta soil. And the terra preta soil is sort of a self-regenerating soil that, just like a tree, grows in layers. So it can be dated how far back it goes, and it goes back, um, you know many thousands of years and is essentially man-made. So it, it mm. indicates the existence of a culture or population that existed within the middle of the Amazon jungle that academics said is impossible to have ever existed. And yet here's this evidence of mass agriculture in that area that would have been uh, capable of supporting millions in terms of population. So there's all mm. kinds of things, you know, that you get into the forbidden archaeology and all that. But there is no um, evidence, so that's not true. In Ecuador, there is evidence of massive pyramidal structures in the middle of the jungle. They're just not excavated or, or uh, talked about much because anybody who knows about them understands that they found, or it is alleged that they have found the bones of giants. Mm. Yeah, I've heard about that. Now, in the historical record, these are the first-person histories of the Spanish who came over and joined Cortes. The local Indians also showed, you know, Cortes's men bones of giants. That's in their that's in their first person. Yeah, and their stories. I had a guest on. He told me about. I, I forgot where in uh, which natives we're talking about here, but they have in their stories. Giants who were eating people. Yeah, yeah. There's. This. Is that the Mayans? Uh, no, that's not necessarily the Maya. But the Maya do have a mythology around giants. But those giants exist within their uh, mythological characters in the Popol Vuh, and they're not um, malevolent. They're they're offspring of the gods. Mm. So it's no different, really, from uh, no. It's the same from uh, say the the, the uh, pantheon of the of the Greeks or. You know, whoever. But these these cannibal or carnivora giants are obviously degenerates from the original giants. This was like the last giants, and one of the villagers had to make a trap because <laughs> these giants also <laughs> snatched their wives. Yeah. They had to make a trap, a clever trap, to catch them, to to deal with them, to stand up against mm -hmm. them, which they did, mm -hmm. and managed to finish them off. Yeah. Kill well, that is the origin story, pretty much, of the uh, Tin Isles, which is the British Isles, right? Is that um, these 30 oh, it's the same story princesses, princesses um, who were the offspring of this one particular Sumer king, mm. uh, he married them off and they all killed their husbands. Uh, Sumer uh, princes murdered them, poisoned them, and then so he banished them. And they took off to the what is today the Tin Isles, where they encountered these giants and, and uh, mated with these giants, and created a big problem on the, the Tin Isle. And that's where you get your Gog and Magog story uh, mm -hmm. in Britain. So there's all kinds of stories everywhere, um, you know, about giants. Yeah. And that's not any different uh, in the in the Americas, and particularly the Mesoamerican region. It's just how they discuss them that's different, mm -hmm. and uh, the myth that surrounds them is different. But essentially, the, the idea is that there, you know, there are giants. Hmm. Um, and in fact, we get into, we were talking about the, um, the leprechauns and so on. What did you call them? You called them something else, I forget. The little, well, 
the little people, the mythical little people. There's different names mm. for them everywhere. In, in England, they call them the leprechauns and, and so on. Right. Hobbits. Yeah. Oh, what we, we call them, uh, olive. Okay. Elves. So in the, so in the Maya, they are the Alush. Mm. And they're a creature, a mischievous creature that you have to negotiate peace with in order for them to protect your farm. Mm. And they have magical powers as well. They can they can activate the uh, dark side of the underworld against you in your daily life if you don't perform rituals and venerations of them properly. Mm. So they play an important role in the novel uh, because this character, Katun, for instance, uh, go back to that. He's this character who is not named because he was conceived during one of these periods of the days out of time. So he's considered an aberration. And as mm. soon as he is born, this drought begins. And so his village um, considers him a demon of the underworld. But because he's the son of the local shaman king, they can't do anything about it. Mm. And so through the course of his life and his narrative, which takes exactly 7,200 days, he goes from being born as the shaman king's offspring and the inheritor of this important city-state that exists. It's a small city-state, but it has a glorious history in relation to the Mirador Basin and its abandonment, so it gets into the uh, minutiae of history. But all of this exists within the novel series so that people understand how and why the Mirador Basin was abandoned, who came out of that in terms of the noble lineages, where they established new city-states, and then ultimately the origins of their conflicts within their mythological history uh, that brought about the pandemic or the, um, the endemic warfare that peaked in the ninth century. So it's through this character that we explore all that. But he's trying to survive this, this drought that takes place through the course of his entire life. And so he, as he grows up, watches his village die. Mm. And of course, he also takes on the thought process that the villagers have that he is the reason for it. Not only that, at some point when he's the last one left alive, he thinks he's dead too, and he also believes he's going through the underworld. Mm. That he's no longer a living being, but actually traveling through the underworld and having embraced that thought process, <coughs> enters the Mirador Basin in order to get away from this massive fire that erupts in the middle of this drought, because essentially a wildfire rips through his region and forces him into the Mirador Basin, where he does encounter one of the nine lords of the night sort of holding court in the ruins of one of these major city-states in the Mirador Basin. And he is given a task, and that is to go to Tikal. He doesn't know why, but he's got to go there. They don't tell him why. And he's going to become potentially a sacrificial lamb in a uh, ritual that is being performed by the shaman king in Tikal, uh, that he thinks is necessary to prevent um, a uh, uh, prophecy that is given to him by one of his uh, day keepers, who is also killed <laughs> for providing this prophecy because it's not a good prophecy. So there's layers upon layers upon layers. So mm. this novel series that I've written is extremely detailed. Essentially, you will have, um, you know, as a reader, come out of the reading of it a complete expert. And uh, not only <laughs> yeah. that's the idea, right, is that, you, yeah, yeah. you know, but, through this narrative history, through this dramatic story with multiple characters and just layers upon layers of cosmology and weird science, if you will, uh, and real history. And would make an excellent Netflix series. Could. It could. I wouldn't trust them <laughs> to do it properly. They would probably uh, want to make yeah. uh, every character a female lead 
and they probably <laughs> want to make everything that comes out of it some sort of uh, punctuation to their cultural philosophy. They would probably have like uh, you know a portion of uh, Asian uh, actors, portion of Afro-American. yeah. They would force they would force <laughs> diversity, force yeah. equality, would force all these things, these these uh, affirmative action. Mm. Uh, methodologies. So the Mayans, the Mayans would look like they came from all over the world. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think you could do the series with Mayans. I mean, it was sort of attempted by um, by uh, you know Mel Gibson with Apocalypto, and right. and he did a good attempt, but those weren't Mayans that he was using, and it wasn't even actually uh, accurate um, Mayan cosmology or, or culture that he was using. He was using a mix up of of um, of Aztec and, and Mixtec. Yeah. Uh, yeah. lifestyle and ritualistic performances and then placing them in Mayapan which is in the Maya post-classic era and calling it Maya. Did he refer to them as Mayans? Yeah, he referred to the whole culture as Maya and he even yeah. used the Mayan dialect in the, in, the, in the movie which I thought was good. You know, I mean, he's, you know, all of it's very good but anybody who knows anything about that uh, era or those peoples would immediately understand that none of that was accurate. Typical Hollywood. Huh? Yeah, typical Hollywood. So I think it would be very difficult to do this series in any way other than, say, like a very extreme um, fantasy style where you blur the lines. You call it Mayan, but you don't necessarily – there aren't a lot of Mayan actors. There aren't Mayan schools for acting. There aren't many Mayans who even leave their village. They, you know what I mean? Like they just live yeah, and okay. die in their villages. They're but not, they, could, they could find extras at least. Absolutely. Um, you could. You could – Find extras, but then you would have this dichotomy between the lead actors and the and the main act and the uh, the extras that would just look completely out of place. It would, I've thought a lot about it. It would be very difficult to do strictly Mayan because the Maya look a very certain way, and and you know, as we know, oh. media has to be reflective of the audience in such a way that they want to go see it. Mm. You're kind of tied up by by that fact. That problem won't uh, manifest itself in. Uh, graphic novel. No, exactly. So that's why it's really great to start as a novel or a graphic novel and um, and then go into the gaming market because then you create an environment where you can um, more or less have people journey through these cosmological uh, and paradigm-based, animistic-based, mind-cosmological-based universes where they become very familiar with the rules and regulations of that universe and how to interact with them in a gaming format. And that then leads towards a more um, uh, congenial market to something that's more authentic Mayan, perhaps. Hmm. So that's how you would cultivate uh, this IP into a place where you could actually do it with Mayan people because you acclimate the audience, uh, you know, whether it's a gaming audience or a graphic novel audience or a novel audience, to how these things look and feel and and behave. So how many parts or do you envision this will be at the end? Wow. Um, it really depends on how deep you want to go. <laughs> because I would like to do, because I'm feeling the movement, but I guess if the, once we get into this, you and I could probably have, you know, like you and Joseph have, you know, 10 or 12 different discussions. Um, no, no, I'm talking about the book series. Oh, the book series is 13... Yeah. Potentially thirteen novels. Thirteen. Yeah. Ah, uh, thirteen. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Thirteen. Of course. <laughs> exactly. Of course. I mean, nice. that's the whole idea: is to build in the thirteen twenty time into the series. Right. 
So for your information, the novel is no longer four novels. It's 13. So the 13 novels more or less explore 20 mystics of the Maya. All right. Okay. But you've written four? Yeah. I've, those four are expanded into 13 because I, I don't know if you watched the video that I sent you of the uh, sort of... Four. The trailer? Yeah. yeah I, I watched the trailer. Beautiful footage. Okay. So you know those cards I wrote on? Yeah. They're scene cards, right? So those are very condensed format. And as I started to flush it out, it just became so voluminous that... Expanded. I thought, right. okay, well, if I'm going to expand it, how am I going to do that in accord with Mayan, you know, time? Yeah. And 13 books of 20 mystics, because there's so many to choose from. I picked 20 yeah. that uh, that I flesh it out to bring out this whole concept of Delanda's journey into the ninth century. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's fun. It's going to be 13. So uh, and you have uh, five of them. More or less done by now? Four novels. Four, mm, okay. Um, and Still a lot ahead of you. Yeah, but the story is like... Yeah. I mean, the actual archive of history that is deciphered, that is directly from the ninth century, or not necessarily the ninth century, but the classic era, which is 250 AD to 900, is constantly expanding. And so it's a narrative mm. history that people don't, un- don't know anything about. And can now be dramatized for mass market consumption. And and that is really the intention here. So <laughs> it's a whole universe of history that people have an absolute blank. You ask anybody, what happened before 1492 in America? They haven't got a clue. Well, guess what? There's at least 13 novels worth of history that I can explore with you as a reader. It's true. It's uh, it's a very good way to to learn, and and I mean it's not without precedence. It's it's a way to do stuff. Like mm-hmm. Umberto Eco, uh, he did this all the time. Name of the Rose. Mm-hmm. People learned much more about Catholic orders by reading that book. Did you catch the name Colleen McCullough in my bibliography of influences? Uh, no, I didn't take notice. She's well known for having written The Thornbirds, but what series that she wrote that really impacted me and, and made a, a big impression and has guided me in the development of my own series is a series called The Masters of Rome. If you've never read it, you really must because it is incredibly fact-based history of Rome from the beginning stages of this character who was a real figure in history, Gaius Marius, and ends with more or less Mark Antony. Mm. And so it covers about 250 years of Roman history in that transition period from the Roman Republic into an imperialistic Rome. Mm. And she received, I think it was seven honorary doctorates for writing the series. It's not her most famous. Hey, did some um, dramatizations of that pop up on Netflix? Because I've seen... I think four episodes of some, you know, it's a new style now to have like, mm-hmm. it's a documentary, but it's illustrate, it's a narrator and it's illustrated with, um, with, uh, it's like a mix of documentation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's called uh, dramatized history or whatever you want to call it. Right. So I saw four. Docudrama, they call it. In- yeah. I saw four episodes in that, of that exact time period. So maybe that's built on her work. 
Maybe. I, I would say that there's a lot of information about the Maya, or sorry, the, uh, the Rome, uh, Roman era. It's just that specific novel series that I recommend people mm, okay. read because it is just so well uh, structured. First of all, it, it's a, it come, every novel comes with a complete glossary of terms mm. at the back. So as you're learning these Roman concepts in original um, ancient Rome, Roman language, you're actually able to flip to the back and get a complete picture of what this one word means. So it really builds, you know, the the ideology and the cosmology and the mindset of the people, the paradigm of the people. And, and I'm doing that with my novel. So as you're reading through and you're coming across all these ancient terms that you have no idea what they are, mm. you can just they're they're italicized, so you can just flip back and it's it's a um, alphabetical order, so it's easy to find. And you read what it is that uh, that word means, and then you flip back to where you are in the book. And that's what she provided. And I thought that was, as far as like immersion is concerned, it's so useful. And very few uh, novels are like that who even deal with, like even even Umberto Eco's uh, Foucault's Pendulum. I wish they'd had more of those um, terms and Latin uh, sequences in the back as a glossary translated so that you could understand it better. Yeah, but I was lucky there because that was my world. So I already knew. I was wondering how on earth this could be a, fiction, a book because people wouldn't have a clue, <laughs> especially back then because Esoterica, <laughs> Esoterica wasn't popularized by then. There was no Da Vinci Code, no The Alchemists, st yeah. stuff like that. And he went hardcore we into... We didn't have the internet. So you... There was no internet. So I, I read that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I got a hard on because it was <laughs> straight out of my world. And I was shocked because I, I, I didn't see how it could be done. Uh, and obviously, it was never his bestseller. No, it could never be a movie. No, but it's my favorite of his. Right, it's my yeah. favorite. I prefer it to uh, the Name of the Rose, but uh, just because it deals with the whole concept of the perpetual mobile and perpetual motion machine. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. And um, and that was already in my mind when I came across that book. So it was kind of like, oh wow, this is really cool. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's funny. Your approach was that. Mine was, uh, I wasn't so concerned about the story as I was about all the groups and orders and, and uh, names. And But speaking of uh, the perpetual motion machine, there's a Norwegian crazy scientist, artist. I wanted to interview him, but his English sucks, <laughs> who has... A verified uh, invention like that. It's uh, in the Technological Museum. He's still alive. You should look into it and maybe... Is it mechanical in nature or is it um, yes. an open-ended fuel source? Uh, you should Google it. Uh, okay. Let me find a name for you. He's uh, kind of an artist, but he's been studying Da Vinci. Okay. He's like He, he looks like Da Vinci. He's old. <laughs> he's got long beard. Uh -huh. So he, he fits the mold of the scientific Google? Yeah. And CNN has interviewed him and everything, so it's like... What's his name? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to find, trying to find here. I forgot. Raider, I think. Let me see. Uh, yeah, Raider Finsrud. Do you uh, spell that for me? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll uh, insert it into... WhatsApp or whatever. So he has several inventions like that. Mm-hmm. So you can actually see his machine. There it is. Now it's sent to you. Okay. Oh, oh Perpetuum Mobile. Yeah, you can see, you can even see. Yeah, in English too. Uh, on YouTube even. 
Okay. You see some of this. Yeah, let's open it up. Radar Finsrud. That's quite yeah. the name. Radar. How do you how do you pronounce uh, it? I would say Radar in uh, his uh, part of the country. They would say Radar. Oh yeah, he's got the wild. Yeah, he's got the wild, long white hair and the intellectual forehead and everything. Okay, he's an artist. Yeah, but he's really also he's kind of a scientist too. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, there's very poor info about him in English. But yeah. and his most Perpetual. and there's been a break-ins in his lab. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, stuff like that. So, but, so he's one to watch. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm looking at it right now. His machine. It's uh, very interesting looking. I've seen a lot of Look, machines. Oh, I just have to add this. He he's clueless about what's going on in the world, so he's not participating in. Mm -hmm. like conventions and stuff like that. He's a loner, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like most of them. Yeah, even like myself. Yeah. I'm a loner. I, I don't know anybody. Yeah, but but you, you know what's going on, right? Well, I know what I'm... I'm not disconnected. That's true. Although, yeah. although when I lived in that uh, small mountain town in, in uh, Canada that I've mentioned many times that I don't name because I don't want a flock of people going there. It, you know, it was isolation and extreme. We didn't have television. We didn't have internet at the time. Uh, right. So there was at least 15 years there where I was completely disconnected from any mainstream aspects of society, mm. not only from um, a uh, media perspective, but literally geographically. Probably where you got your sense from. Of course. Yeah, of course. Mm. And I mean, as I said, that was an esoteric university, right? It was an informal one, but it was, uh, there were a lot of interesting people going through there with a lot of interesting uh, information. Ah, right. And right. as an experimental group of people, we were exploring things, not only individually, but as a group. And we did things that, you know, aren't normal per se, um, you know, as, as a community. And that community still exists, but it's been tainted. Uh, by feminism, it's been tainted by uh, yeah. cultural Marxism now, it's been tainted by the designer drug party environment, mm. it's been tainted by a lot of things uh, that have really perpetuated deeply. But I have to add that uh, uh, I don't think all his um, machines are at display. Um, Probably not. Yeah. I think he mentioned, yeah, he has several like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I had some correspondence with him because of um, uh, I wanted him on the show, and he told me about what he's doing. So, uh, but the the most famous one is um, at display, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's see. Well, I could put you under an entire community of people. There was a, um, a conference I went to, a very hush hush conference that I went to in the northern part of the United States in Idaho, and I saw at least. 10 or 12 wildly different machines in action. Some of them were dealing in this torsion field. Others were dealing in mechanical resonance. Uh, but they were all um, producing energy more than it required to start it and maintain it. And this yeah, but this is wrong. Here, here it says it's not 100% uh, efficient. That's wrong. That's a myth. Uh, According to him uh, and what I've seen, it is. So maybe this is an old article. Maybe. Uh, See, the thing is, perpetual motion on Earth is difficult to achieve for pretty obvious reasons of the physical universe here on Earth. Mm. However, if you're dealing in electrical magnetism and electricity, you're dealing with an open-ended fuel source. 
Yeah, you could kind of lift energy from the other side of from the atmosphere. The atmosphere. The the sun is blowing off all this energy into space. It's being no, 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 no. If it's hyperdimensional, you're taking it from another dimension. Sure, but this is even easier. Right, that's the real zero point energy, not just being efficient to exploit whatever is around here, but you kind of. Uh, um, cheat you kind of you, you know you're taking it from them <laughs> well zero points a completely different thing and this is where you go back to the ether science of tesla right yeah and that is the all-pervasive um presence of electricity in space all space yeah and that is the source of zero point energy and that is also what i would call open-ended fuel source that's why i use that yep. term because Absolutely. it because it is very easy to harness and draw from that fuel source, whether it's from a zero-point perspective, which is more or less the uh, ether equivalent of splitting the atom, if you want to use an analogy. Right. It's like drilling down to the very core content of that electrical um, phenomena. Uh, or you can just do it in a very simple fashion, which is to accumulate um, free-roaming electrons uh, from the atmosphere, which is an open-ended fuel source. And then augmenting that fuel source with an already existing technology provided by Tesla, which is the Tesla coil, which is exactly what it does. It takes a small amount of energy and it amplifies it. And I mean, that's been available since, you know, 1897. Yeah. Did you hear my uh, talk with Joseph on this topic? Uh, depends. I've heard a lot of them. Uh, yeah. It's <laughs> called um, the something about zero point, uh, the alchemy of zero point. I don't think I've heard that one. Is that on your website or on YouTube? It's on my podcast channel. It's in two parts. One, we go through the history of such inventions. No, no. In part one, we discuss the nature of the science. Right. Uh, and in part two, we discuss the history of it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I haven't heard that one. So that uh, would be right up your alley. You love it. It is. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, and I have practical, you know, a lot of this stuff takes place in theory in people's minds. I've seen these machines work. I have photographs. Right. Them. I yeah. watched them. I observed them. They gave me the plans. I can rebuild them if I had the. Uh, the but you are you are not affiliated with the guys that uh, what's his face again? Um, <laughs> no idea. Eric Dollard. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, that's a well-known name. I think maybe you talked about him. But uh, uh, yeah, well, I've met him. Talked to him. He's. He's your typical mad genius, that guy. Yeah, like most of them are. So, Jeroen, you know Jeroen from Holland? Yep. He holds uh, free energy conferences. Yeah. Uh, every second year it's on break of civilization, and every second year it's about free energy. Uh, okay. Yeah, I do like that guy, but no, I, I'm not affiliated with him. This is a unaffiliated conference in Idaho. No, because there's another one. There's two, right? There's the stuff he's doing, and then there's the other one. And I think you've been associated with the other one. Isn't that right? Yeah, I was at the, um, uh, what do they call it now? They've changed their names to, to hide what it is, right? They keep changing the name. Um, oh, okay. New Energy Conference. Let me just see if that's... The newest version of the title. Uh, Energy Conference, uh, Idaho. They really think they're hiding something. I mean, they all, everybody who monitors that stuff will know about it. It's called the Energy Science Conference now, which is uh, yeah. just a way of masking a little bit what they do. And, and he calls his uh, global BEM breakthrough energy movement. Well, there you go. So it's completely different. 
but they are essentially dealing with the same thing. So yeah, yeah. they are. But the cool thing is that Global BAM has published many of the lectures from um, their people, and there's all sorts of people, and some some of them also have practical applications to show for. Mm-hmm. So on the on the landing page of the uh, Energy Science Conference, which I just sent you the link, you'll see one of the uh, torsion field devices that I saw in action. Right. And obviously, I spent the whole day discussing that. Uh, device and had the inventor up there talking about how it works and of course the machine was working the entire time we were discussing it is this uh, is this the one where the woman is associated what's her name um oh um, sean, sean manning gene manning yeah she is associated with that i don't know if she's still associated with that particular conference but she was there the two times i was there right Right. So you could see. I think some of these people have been on both. Actually. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Gene got around. Let me just see what the uh, speakers list here is from 2020. So the leader of this conference, Aaron Murakami, he's very hard to penetrate as a person, and it's difficult to know if he's a CIA active guy or some three-letter alphabet agency. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like he might be. It just, he he ring, like, from my understanding, all that stuff. So far, Eric is there. I don't see Jean yet. Let me just see if she pops up. Are you at Global BAM? No, I'm on the website that we're talking about. Oh, okay. Uh, It's uh, Aaron Marikami's site, the Energy Science Conference. Catherine Austin Fitz. Yeah, here you can see the presenters from his... Okay. Uh, I'll send it to you. Yeah, Jean Manning's listed here as a tag, but that doesn't mean that she's at the 2021 conference. No, but in the past she was. Yeah, she was in the past, yeah. Catherine Austin Fitz was here, I see. Uh, Nick Begich as well. Yeah, Nick Begich. Just reading the Um, Mm well-known Brooks Agnew, Michael Tellinger. Oh, Judy Wood. They got Judy Wood on board. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Maybe she's, she's famously hard to, to go to these things. Have you been to some of these? Sir? Huh? You been to any of these? No, I haven't physically been to any. Of yeah, they're fun to go to because the people and the environment is quite interesting. Obviously. Yeah. Oh, but you know what? Ugh. Jean's great, but she got sucked into this whole ideology with Susan Cornicky Manowich. Oh, why is that? Well, instead of talking about the history of these machines that she has been documenting, she stood up there with Jean, or with Susan and just castigated the male audience for not having more females in this field. And I just was so turned off by Susan. She All she does is stand up in front of everybody and go, you men are terrible for the fact that there are not more women in this field and you got to do better at, at making bringing women into this field. And that's all she does. As if that's as if that's their fault. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in fact, most of these guys have lost relationships and support from women because they don't pursue a more profitable avenue. Yeah. You know, it's just you know, yeah. all I could feel was respect and admiration for the people who had literally risked their lives in many cases and certainly had gone through hell in a handbasket, even to be there with these devices. And she's castigating them over ideological uh, matters around feminism. When I was sitting there listening to her, it was really, really an intense experience. Mm. Yeah, she's just disappointing. The politics is just disgusting. I, I mean, there's not many females even in the mainstream uh, version <laughs> of this, right? So, 
Mm-hmm. Why, if there's not many females in the mainstream version, why would there be many females in the pirate version? Another thing is that females are more compliant than men. They're less likely to go outside of the norm, just biologically. Yeah, uh, sure. I found a site. So, so apart from her, are there other that are overlapping those two? I don't mean 2021, I just mean in general. Yeah, I know what you're talking about, like the two different conferences. Um, let me just see the names here. doesn't look like it. Um, Richard Dolan might go to this one in Idaho now, but I haven't seen his name listed, although I really like Dolan. Yeah. Um, Tellinger, I think, is on both. <laughs> he's managed to weasel his way in either, because he's he, he's not really, a, he's not a scientist. And, he's just a guru. Yeah. yeah, he's just a guru. Yeah, he's as irrelevant as Susan Manovich. Yeah, but I guess yeah. Susan Manovich is, is deliberately uh, Nick. But Pagich. I like telling her. I, I like I like the stuff he's talking about and everything. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, Nick, I'm not dismissing him. Nick Begich, I think, has been at the other one as well. Right, right. Um, and Gene Manning, of course, and then I think William Gibson uh, or Gibbons, sorry, mm. has been there. And um, this Thomas Vallone name is familiar, but I'm not sure. I think Michael Tellinger, but again, doesn't look like many more than Gene Manning, Susan Cornicky, Manning. But she's listed. She's listed in in the one you sent me too. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. She's close to. I think she's close to Daniel. Yeah, she's been on his show many times. Oh, okay. I don't know if she, Jean Manning has been on on Dark Journalist, but uh, I've know for sure she she has been. That she's been on Dark Journalist. I haven't seen her. That, that's Danielle. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. She's been oh, on okay. Daniel's show many times. Yeah, I haven't seen that, those episodes. Anyway, so should we get back to it? Sure. Yeah. So uh, people who has gotten their curiosity peak by. <laughs> your presentation today where would you suggest they go from here yeah they just go to mysticsofthemaya.com so that's where uh, my website is and that's where i'm building up my pre-launch audience for this uh, crowdfund Um, and it's also where i've put together a little store where if you feel like buying stuff with mayan art on it whether it's a shirt or mugs or whatever you're essentially supporting the process um, but I'm going to be providing more content there. Um, you, you have an excellent trailer already. Yeah, yeah, you can go and see the trailer in terms of you can see the original format of the novel, which you and I know was written on scene cards. Because I actually originally conceived this as a uh, animated film. Mm. And it was going to be in the vein of, say, Pixar, for example. And I actually worked with uh, a woman in... Um, uh, Erica Cleland Hara, who was a story doctor from Pixar. And that was the original version of the novel. Then the novel became more, you know, adult in nature mm-hmm. and more sophisticated in terms of its uh, literalization of Mayan history and cosmology. But the original concept, before I knew most of what I know, was as an animated series. Mm. And so that was the original written, handwritten version on scene cards. So I can move the scene cards around and figure out how I was going to shoot this. Mm. Um, and that's what she and I worked on and that's way back <laughs> that's going back to 2002 basically wow so you've been brewing this stuff for 20 years uh, more than that because obviously I came across the calendar in 94, 95 and started living on it that was wow. the um, original inspiration to even get into this topic Wow. and then of course 
discovering that I was now part of the uh, Jose Arguelles cult. I <laughs> moved out of that. But this means you're an expert. You know, it takes 20 years to become an expert in a field. I think I'm an expert. I mean, obviously, there yeah. are specialists in in all the different aspects of this, whether it's epigraphy, iconography, ethnography, of course. anthropology, archival history. But I've gone through all of it myself mm. uh, and pieced this thing together. And, um, you know, I think it's going to be great. So... Anybody who's actually had a peek at any of it has been very um, complimentary. And, and that includes a lot of these book fairs that I go to where I get to encounter a lot of editors and writers and publishers, and I give them little pieces of it. So I always wanted to see. You know, you can talk to your own friends and family, but they're just going to tell you what you want to hear. And then you give it to experts who actually work in the industry, who are editors, who are um, – you know, say, uh, award-winning journalists and so on. These are people who've read portions of the book and they're all very, um, complimentary. And that goes back even another 10 years. So I think I've really advanced since then in terms of the telling of this story and really the fleshing out of what the content is. Mm. It takes a long time to not only reconstitute an entire paradigm in detail so that you understand how people behave in a ninth century context mm. within a completely alien civilization in a completely alien world yeah. in order for it to be anywhere near accurate. And I've had so much exposure to the academic world that I feel compelled um, to be as accurate as possible. Yeah, yeah. They're not vicious wolves, essentially. Would uh, you say that the more you learn, the more you understand and learn about the Mayans, the more the story writes itself? Yes, exactly. That's the point exactly. They wrote it, in fact. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm just literalizing what they wrote. Yeah. Now, of course, the ninth century uh, epigraphy and iconography and pottery is is that of the royal class. So mm. we're dealing with the propaganda yeah. of that royal class. Mm. And knowing that, of course, you know that this is exaggeration, this is manipulation, mm. this is the power infrastructure that you're dealing with. Misunderstanding. It's a lot of ignorance. Really, it's the uh, perversion of reality. Right? It's, uh, it's the what now? It's the perversion of reality. They understood yeah. various things about astronomy and you know uh, mathematics and uh, obviously um, you know how to perform miracles in, in a sense through uh, what we would consider today to be you know the, the role of the doctor. Right? So the shaman mm. goes out and figures out these tinctures and heals people. But they contextualize it as miracles of the deities. Right? They did all of that in order to keep mm. control of their people and also to scare them, to use fear, and to um, you know compel them towards ever-increasing scales of uh, slavery uh, to build up these city-states and maintain the lifestyle of these elite nobles. And that ultimately is the storyline of any civilization that peaks and collapses. And we're in it now. So it's really an analogy through the safe telescope of history to look at ourselves today. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, speaking of collapsing empires, <laughs> USA is in the last phase of theirs. Uh, but I would say all of Western Europe, actually. Europe, too. I would say all of the first world, so to speak. Well, you, Europe, isn't, Europe isn't an empire. It's a collection of different... <laughs> but anyway, so would you say that... 
I mean, you, you've made uh, TV programs before. Is there any one that you've made about Mayans that people can access? Oh, now we're getting into that whole thing. Okay, so when I started Mystics, or sorry, um, Maya Media, I started with the idea I would do documentary series and, and other uh, factual television series, and I was very successful. I won an award. The problem was that I am ideologically outside of the lines for them. And I also don't do bootlicking and ass kissing, and I also don't go into <laughs> agreements, which essentially are indentured servitude. Right. And as right. a result, I was initially the doors were open wide for me, and as I got into negotiations, those doors slammed shut. So I sold several series, and they have sat on the shelves as punishment oh, damn. for not uh, for not adhering to the culture and um, Jeez, so you can't use them you can't you can't use them damn. can't use them I can show you the trailers but I can't show you the actual series hmm. so you know I mean this is a common story uh, for people who yeah. try and get into the media world and most people bend to their demands and end up watering down their content and or becoming Chills. But better you do it yourself. So I, I totally support Well, I'm doing your... it myself. I'm taking the difficult road, and this is why I need people's support, yeah. right? It's like I, I don't need millions of dollars. What I need is to be able to sit down and finish this final series and get it out because, it, you know, self-publishing has has developed to the point that you can more or less perform all the, the functions. Who, who's going to do your graphics? Well, that's going to be fun. That could be anybody, and that could actually be a contest. So once the novel series is funded to completion, then I can do a second um, uh, crowdfund maybe on Kickstarter as opposed to Indiegogo uh, where we fund the graphic novel, and that can be a competition where the audience decides what visual art they prefer and who that artist would be. Mm. So these are engagement methods uh, that are you know, uh, more or less my invention. But yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, the, you know, Iron Sky. Yes, yeah, that's a great whole series. I love that. Th that used that model. Not that it helped the quality at the end, but at least they they did it that way. Both of them, I think. Yeah, well, you saw the trailer. Uh, some of the artwork that I've developed is just as an idea of what this could look like. So I did work with an artist, um, an artist in Calgary, to develop a couple panels. Mm -hmm. Um, high definition panels, three panels to depict three moments within the novel series. So the first novel, so that people could see or visualize what this world looks like um, from a graphic novel perspective. And I think they look really good. Mm. Um, do you remember those from the from the trailer I gave you? Yeah, yeah, I did. I agree. So I did sort of pre. Can, can, can people watch this trailer? Yeah, they can see that right on the website. Mystics of the Maya, it's the first thing you okay, see. Okay. That's the homepage. So they get the uh, trailer. It's a four-minute trailer of, of what it is that I'm doing, what it is I'm done, and what the intention is. And then there's obviously an opportunity to give their email so that they can get on the mailing list and see other content. I'm interviewing. I'm doing an interview series, too, of academics, of uh, independent researchers, um, you know, just everything related to this series. And, and you'll throw some of them my way, right? Because I, I, I'm going to follow up uh, with a couple of more shows on this topic. And the first one is a dude you mentioned many times. What's his name again? Lauren Jeffries, yeah. Lauren Jeffries. Lauren Jeffries. 
Yeah, you can look him up uh, yourself if anybody is interested. He wrote a book called The Sacred Count. And it's the fractal calendar of ancient Mesoamerica. And it's by Lauren W. Jeffries. And he will mm. be the first person that I send your way. There will mm. likely be a series of others who do these astronomical mappings of the American um, city-states of antiquity so that you can see in precise form how they arrange themselves according to uh, you know the astronomical realities that they were observing the mathematical realities what, what, what about gilbert are you in touch with him adrian gilbert no i've never spoken with adrian again as i read his, i want to speak with him as i read would his, he be a good uh, no not about this no 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 i mean his theory is obviously uh, inaccurate because the calendar system that they were using to peg the end date notation to 2012 is inaccurate. So any theory based on that is going to be inaccurate. What is his theory? Because I never I never connected him to the Maya. Uh, I, 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 put, my, my approach to him isn't the Maya. Yeah, well, simply put, his theory was um, that portions of the long count and the, uh, the Mayan calendar are pegged to sunspot cycles. We talked about that in part one. That's Maurice Cotterell, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's Maurice Cotterell and Adrian Gilbert. They wrote that together. They wrote it together? Yeah, that was their, their book that they did. Together. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Although, of course, Cotterell has many books on this mm -hmm. himself. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I didn't even know they were cooperating. Okay. Yeah. So you do not uh, favor that they that the sunspots are reflected uh, in the calendar. Well, the math is incorrect because the end date notation that they were using is incorrect by virtue of the fact that they omitted the days out of time. So anything based on that end date notation mm. and all the mathematics that go into it are out by seventy five years. Yeah, but uh, the, it could still be a pattern. You just have to adjust for those seventy five years. Okay, well that's a big. <laughs> That's a no, no, I'm saying if you discover a pattern on the one hand and then you have uh, a counting system on the other hand, right? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Now, if you overlay that pattern to that counting system, it doesn't matter if it's 75 years off as long as if you adjust for that. If you're dealing with sunspot cycles, it's a very precise math. It's very precise mathematics. Now, they could go back and revise it and see based on, you know, Lauren right. Jeffrey's work and say, okay, well, there's... Yeah, they should. Either they should or they could, right? I don't even think they're aware of Lauren Jeffrey's. Again, Lauren Jeffrey's came to my awareness a month ago. Oh, just a month ago. Wow. And, and, uh, and his book only came out recently. Oh, right. And he's almost nowhere to be found online, and I just happened to dig him out of, the, out of uh, Kentucky, <laughs> where he lives. Great. Send him my way. I want to be, I want to be one of the first. Right, that's my point. He, his, <laughs> his information is, is really new. Right. It has been uh, validated by people within the uh, Mayan academic field, but that doesn't mean that they're out there proliferating it. It just means that it's new and no. it's going to take time to get out no. there. And obviously anything that comes of it, yep. well, its genesis will take time. If they're going to revise the Mayan prophecies, Adrian Gilbert and Maurice Cotterell, mm. the prophecy idea is, is very interesting because it is interesting. So, yeah, you could interview Adrian Gilbert about it, but I don't think he would even support uh, their findings at this point. I think he would say they'd have to go back and sort of rethink the entire thing. Mm. So on this topic, no, I don't think so. On other topics, of course, uh, yeah, 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 Egypt sure. and, uh, yeah. you know, all those things that they get into. Um, and the same with Cotterell. Most of his work isn't to do with the Mayans anyway. Right, so. yeah. So I'm thinking that what you need to get a hold of are – 
you know, the people that I'll sort of send your way, um, because I've spent so much time in this, I can more or less curate it for you. But it is a difficult world to navigate in terms of facts and fiction. Mm. Um, like, you know, when we talk about uh, John Major Jenkins, who's not even around anymore. He, or he passed away. Yeah, he's, he's dead. He's been dead for quite a while. I hope he survived 2012, though. <laughs> yeah, he did. I think he did. But, you know, what I'm saying, like, the people who were out there sort of shilling this idea of 2012, uh-huh. you know, we're doing so to capitalize on the phenomenon. And I, I understand that. That's a way to, to, to get the information out. And I was trying to do the same with the Divine Archive. But my approach was to tell the archival history of the Maya so people could at least get familiar with the culture that gave technically gave birth to the Mayan calendar in terms of our modern awareness of it. Damn, you're right. He died in uh, 2017. Very young. Mm-hmm. He was just 53. Oh, it was kidney cancer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jose Arguelles, the, <laughs> you know, the, the more or less the, the cult leader. Uh, I call him a cult leader, but not in a negative sense, actually. <laughs> Um, it was in a positive sense. He was trying to bring awareness to, you know, this animistic tradition, the idea of real time versus mechanized time. And in that sense, he was a great cult leader. But mm. he, he didn't even make it to 2012. Right. Which must have right. been frustrating for him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wouldn't even know how that would have felt uh, for him because he started way back in the, in the mid 80s, early 80s, cultivating this awareness of this calendar and its use as a potential real time piece and therefore a uh, uh, tool for redirecting the course of civilization, which is no less than his end. Didn't you say that he was the one who started the whole uh, end time things around 2012? He didn't end. Yes, he did. Yes and no. Yes and no. He understood the Popol Vuh. He understood, at least in theory, from the academic structure of the calendar, that there was going to be an end date notation in 2012. He wanted to capitalize on that end date notation by planting seeds for the future. He wasn't really concerned so much with, we're going to go through cataclysmic destruction. He was more mm. in the idea, we're going to go through new age rebirth of human consciousness. Yeah. That's and that's what they all say, you know, everybody who was interviewed in Coast to Coast, etc. All of them were talking about, even Hoagland and those guys, everybody was interviewed about 2012 and everybody said, oh, it's a new consciousness, it's a new yeah, cycle. Yeah, maybe it is and certainly it's uh, an opportunity for that and it's cert- certainly um, a hope fulfillment approach, right, mm. to, that, um, to that end date notation. But I think what we're dealing with here is truly a collapse of civilization on a global scale mm-hmm. uh, that will more or less resolve itself by 2087. Right, right, right. Which is the appropriate notation. And, huh. and you know, like the Chinese say, sorry, go on. And we're, we are seeing that, you know, it's more or less in action um, yeah, now. Uh, and, and all that really is is the same thing that has happened before. Only now it's happening on a global scale. So plus uh, the technological uh, difference. Yeah, the amplification of the technological aspect is a key aspect. Absolutely. Like and the I think, Chinese. Yeah. And I think that sort of fits with your fascination for Atlantis. I mean, there is a lot of speculation that that was self-inflicted mm. and uh, technology-based, although it's mythological in nature in terms of what that technology was or how it actually occurred i mean you can speak more more to that but isn't that true isn't that what they say Uh, yeah i I would agree but imagine 
from uh, 12 to 87 you know like the Chinese say may you live in interesting times so <laughs> you and me <laughs> we are around to see the whole transformation but probably not the end result did you know that that saying is actually a slur of uh, what the Chinese saying of may you live in interesting times of what, what is it the slur of it's meant to uh, tell your enemy that they hope that you live through times of great difficulty yes that's the intention. Yeah. It's a it's a veiled curse, so yes, to speak. Exactly, exactly. But in this, uh, and it's still uh, literally true now in the usage I use now, because <laughs> although you could argue that yeah, consciousness is on the rise, people are becoming more aware, etc. On the other hand, uh, the grip is also tightening more than ever from the powers yeah. that be. Yeah, I'd say that's a I'd say that's a, a modern. Um, Invention. This idea that we're living in uh, enlightened times, when in fact, if you really take a step outside of the paradigm and look at it, it's po quite possibly the darkest period in history, far worse yeah, than, and, than the dark age. I mean, materialism has never been stronger. That's My for God, sure. yeah. Like I mean, just the absolute banality of intellectual uh, discourse. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. Uh, I mean, you're old enough to remember. You just have to go a few decades back. Um, people were much more skeptical to mass media mm -hmm. and they were much more in the game of trying to decide for themselves. Nowadays, a new generations are being grown up uh, with this slave mentality, mm -hmm. like authoritarian, bootlicking Well, they're mentality. eager for it, right? They're eager for it. I mean, as these mm. great transfers of wealth occur, which was, we've been seeing one after another in, 20, yeah. in 2001 and then uh, 2008 and then uh, now, you know, where, the greatest one is now. Never, it's completely unprecedented. Yeah, where, where essentially uh, the centralized authority will own everything and we'll just lease it or rent it. Exactly. Um, you know that is global servitude. <laughs> and, and and you're in a you're in a field where you know they talk about small businesses, right? Small and me yeah. medium businesses. That's being wiped out too. Completely wiped out, and that's the intention of the lockdown. It's the clear intention of the lockdown. Yep. Corporate, uh, corporations taking over everything. But this is too depressing. Let's not even <laughs> go down that road today. Well, there's, you know, in any major uh, period of entropy, uh, there is always new growth, right? But that growth is small, scattered, it's hard to spot. True. And, and these are the seeds or the opportunities of planting seeds for, for new and great things. And that's really the intention, I think, behind your uh, channel, my efforts, my work, which is why it hasn't been, you know, mm elevated because i certainly put in the effort it's certainly quality work it's just that the industries that are in charge don't like it because it promotes something contrary to their narrative and, exactly. and so i go to the crowd to support it and hopefully convince people listening to at least uh take the uh risk-free action of handing over their email so at least i can communicate with them directly Mm. and provide uh, valuable content to them and a, hopefully eventually an experience of uh, a paradigm that uh, once dominated this entire continent and, you know, it's essentially a resurrection of that consciousness uh, through the process of reading the series. Mm. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that impressed me with the Mayans is that, uh, the well, first off, I can't get over the fact you said that they're still here that they were never wiped out. That, that's amazing. 
and that they preserved their traditions. I mean, down to mm. I went to, to a, uh, I went to a, with the earth. Yeah, I went to a cooking thing two, three days ago. Right. Uh, to learn how to make um, Mayan food tacos. And, <laughs> yeah, well, kind of. It was a Mayan woman who ended up teaching the class, but she's. Um, we learned how to make everything from scratch. So we made our own tortillas by soaking the corn and then grinding the corn. And wow them into patties and everything, and then we did the meat all ourselves. Did you go out and shoot the cow too? <laughs> no, but we did go to the market and select the cow, and right, right. and you know we made chorizo ourselves, which is kind of interesting. Which is pork. you didn't select a live cow, did you? Uh, no, no, there was no live cow there, but the head was there along with the nose. I could send a picture. You'd, you'd wow. Love. Yeah, it's a real Mayan market as well. So it's right, uh, right. you know it's about ninety percent Mayan people. Right. Um, you know, they look at me like I'm some strange animal. And uh, where, where I'm from, the west of Norway, there is a very famous delicatessen. It's famous among gourmets and pervs. <laughs> people are into yeah, people are into disgusting food. Oh. That's like that's a thing. You know, that's a thing, right? I guess so. I, yeah. Just like the gourmets, like the gastronomes, the, it's a thing to eat exotic stuff, uh, disgusting, like ape brain. <laughs> now, in in our part of the country, they eat uh, sheep's head. Okay. So with ice and everything, <laughs> ice tongue, you name it. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you you cook the entire thing. So check. I, I just sent you two pictures uh, from the market. Let's see. Um, uh-huh. There it is. Okay. Right. Interesting. <laughs> That's how the cows look down there. Okay. Yeah. Oh, not like our cows. Yeah, they're not um, done up like uh, the Canadian cows, where they're just jacked up on hormones and what do you call it, steroids. Oh yeah. yeah, but yeah, but it's a different race altogether. Like our cows, the horns are straight up. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, those are our bulls. We have those that have bulls that are straight up. Ones. And down here, they have a uh, more of a grass. No, coat. I mean no, no, no. The, the the cows too. I mean, I have cows. Uh, you know, when people say until the cows come home, that's actually a thing here. <laughs> I have cows outside my window. Oh. <laughs> that's cute. So. So they actually do come home. No, uh, it's a different race altogether. Hmm. The snoot is that what you call yeah, it? Yeah, the snout, the nose. Yeah, the snout. snout yeah. yeah, yeah, that's different. Yeah, the snout. Hey, last thing. Sure. When is Forum Borealis getting their own uh, trailer? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so that thing has been wor- uh, worked on and worked on, and I think it's it sort of speaks to my methodology. Like we had a pretty good edit, and we could have. Yeah, taken, but hang on, hang on. I have to explain. We could have brought it out, but then COVID happened, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to explain. The Great World Reset happened, and now we've got all that to put in there, along with the other uh, spiritual components that had been. Yeah, yeah. Uh, People don't know this, but but we've been plotting, right? That you you're a great film uh, visual artist, so you were. And actually, I think it was one of my video makers. He sent me. Uh, one day he said, hey, have you seen this? <laughs> and because he couldn't make, uh, he was Googling Forum Borealis and then he ended up in your draft trailer. <laughs> so the thing is, Stacy has volunteered to make like a landing video for us at YouTube. So that's what I'm teasing him about right now for those who yeah, I've been doesn't understand what we're talking about. All over the planet since we started that and of course I've been uh, distracted. No, no, it's great stuff, man. Uh, what, you ha- still have it out there, right? Of course I do. Yeah, it just sits there. Of course I don't promote it, but yeah. it does sit there under the Foreign Borealis name and it is an edit. There's a couple of edits that you can find. 
Um, but I, yeah, you know, yeah. don't go looking for them. Just wait for the debut <laughs> on uh, Foreign Borealis because then you'll get the proper updated version, which right. I think I was pretty accurate with. I mean, we're Typical talking. Typical artist, so proud in his work. <laughs> don't look at the draft. Don't look at the draft. <laughs> well, it is cool. I mean, it is a cool version. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, but it doesn't quite reflect your intention as much as you wanted, which is why we didn't go ahead with the. Uh, but it's almost done. It is almost done. It just needs some tweaking. Hmm. Plus, we need to put in some business about yeah. COVID, obviously, and then the whole oh, yeah, the yeah. whole vaccine, as it may or may not, uh, yeah, to the transhumanism, yeah. which is now. It's funny that I put that in there because you never asked for that, and I put that in there as sort of something that I saw. Right. Um, so well, well that, it's been in the cards for a long time, but also I think it's been on the horizon. Five G should also have a reference, I think. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah how that plays that whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then you might get shut down. <laughs> right. So, yeah, that's true. So I don't know. I don't know. It's a it's a real balancing act then, on what we should and shouldn't put in there, or how much of it. And you know, it's easy enough. I to mean, if if you subtitle, it, it will work. I mean, uh, the word five G can't be banned. <laughs> No. Because it's a real technology. The video <laughs> coverage of that issue can't be banned because it's already out there. Well, don't say that. It actually can be banned. I just mean mainstream media <laughs> stuff, like the lies. I know, I know. But they, at the end of the road, it may be so crazy. So the uh, ending up in the only authorized coverage mm. of 5G, for example, shall be whatever comes out of, I don't know, BBC. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, that's how crazy the world is now. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, that so, really speaks to the second series that I've been working on for just about the same amount of time. And that is the one. That okay, I'll, what's that? It's the Tesla Tesla series. Oh, you okay. Tell, tell us a little about that before we end here. Well, I think the, the thing that, I mean, without deep diving into that, um, the thing that I wanted to say was that, you know, since 2011, My partner on that is the producer of 16 Francis Ford Coppola films. So I thought for sure this was going to move ahead, right? Yeah. Because when you have somebody who's more or less produced, uh, well, he did produce uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Nice. Um, so many of the, you know, Godfather 3, even though the Godfather 3 was the worst of the bunch, it still was Godfather 3. You know what I love about Godfather 3? It has some very subtle references to historic effects. Yeah. Unlike the two uh, others that are pure fiction, of course. Yeah, well, they had time in between to see what the impact of not only their own film, but mm. the legacy of that era of, of organized crime has had on culture and civilization. And they did put it in there. And I had an interesting, uh, I was part of an interesting dinner one time in Toronto where uh, this um, very rich Jewish hotelier from New York City owns many hotels, some of them even across the way from the former uh, site of the Twin Towers, mm -hmm. um, flew me to Toronto to meet with him about Tesla because he wanted to finance the series as a potential. He wanted to be one of the original mm -hmm. investors to uh, profit as much as possible, of course, um, from the series uh, fruition. Of course, he wanted to meet um, Fred. And talk with him. So I got to sit there and listen to these two guys talk about the Sicilian mafia because this guy was a Sicilian Italian mm. right, <laughs> uh, right. mafia guy right. from New York, right? right. Who's uh, you know wants to have a dinner with the producer of of one of the Godfather films. Yeah. Um, so I got to listen to their conversation about what shooting was like in Sicily. 
Right. And and all the the shenanigans that went on behind the scenes in the constant negotiation with the Sicilian mafia in terms of location and and, uh, equipment and and all these different things. The, the, the hoops and ladders and that you know producers go through to get any film made it's amazing any film gets made yeah you could say that but but number three we references some of the shady stuff with Pito the Pito Lodge the uh, Vatican Bank right yes murder of the murder of the banksters uh, and that goes back to the Reformation really like you talk about the spark for the Reformation the Reformation was sparked because of uh, the sale of indulgences. Mm. by the Roman Catholic um, Pope to finance the building of St. Paul's Basilica. Right, right. And, you know, essentially buying your, your family members and yourself into heaven. <laughs> but, but what happened with your Tesla documentaries? Is it still on the horizon? Well, it's, never a documentary. it's never a documentary. It was always intended to be a, um, a dramatic sci-fi drama. Oh, okay. Uh, streaming, streaming series for HBO and Basically, I wrote uh, what is called the show Bible. Mm. In my case, that's a, about a 180-page document that mm. is used by the writing group that runs the series. So the way TV series and streaming series operate you is, is you have an overarching creative um, uh, director, which is called the showrunner. And the showrunner selects the directors for each of the episodes. He also hires all the writing staff to write all these series in in short order because typically when you have a series greenlit, you've got to get it from storyboard, uh, yeah. you know, the show bible at, to a finished product within a year. Mm. So it's a very accelerated process, and the show bible serves as the framework uh, for all the rules of the universe that you're entering. All the characters that are in it, all the right. storylines, right. all the potential narratives and, and conflicts and everything else that you get into it. And, of course, in this case, all the science and the various narratives and the various epochs of Tessa's life that we could explore. Mm. Um, so I did develop that. I tried to run a crowdfund on it uh, way back, and I didn't know how to run crowdfunds back then, so I, I totally uh, shit the bed. But um, Thread's still involved. I have a running, renewing, rolling contract with him, but he's more or less – um, semi-retired right now it isn't going to do much to to get it off the ground so my intention now is to just roll out the Mayan series okay. as a novel, then a graphic novel series and then take the economic uh, and market um, you know, uh, support that I gain from that process and then carry it over into uh, Tesla as a series of novels again graphic novels again and then hopefully a streaming series. I mean all this stuff could never happen uh, you know, that's sort of the risk that I run by doing things myself. And in fact, you run it doing it with the mainstream anyway. Um, but in this case, at least if I get the novel series out, it's, 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 a, it's in an original content format. It's published as I want it. It's not uh, manipulated by uh, forces in the marketplace that are nefarious in nature. And therefore, the true stories can get out. I mean, I spent a lot of time with that. Mm. I even went to uh, Serbia and interviewed uh, members of his family, um, his sister's wow. family, actually. Cool. And I met his uh, nephew in New York, and obviously that guy was useless. But, um, <laughs> oh, he was. He was just out to make money. You heard a conspiracy theory about Bush Sr. having worked in his lab? Yes. Well, there's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not Bush Sr., it's uh, Prescott Bush who had some interest. Oh, it's interest. Yeah, it's Prescott Bush, because we're going back, right? 
I mean, Tesla in yeah. New York is 1889, right, to his peak. Yeah, no, this was at the end. And I think it was Bush Sr. in the 40s. Well, definitely, definitely he had some involvement in Tesla technology at that point. And it is conceivable that the Philadelphia experiment was a real experiment and that it did have the unintended con consequences that are portrayed uh, rather um, cartoonishly Dramatically. in, in the, um, you know, what we've heard about it. But uh, what I find more interesting about Tesla is his associations to the Nazis, his associations to uh, you know, um, the Rothschilds and J.P. Morgan as one of their uh, economic shills yeah. in America. And, um, the, uh, the use of the transatlantic cable to manipulate markets, stock market, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's like what happens around Tesla as a result of Tesla is more fascinating than anything. And all the interesting characters, yeah. all the scientists, philosophers, stuff like that, are, uh, oh, that God. he frequented. If you ever, if that ever becomes uh, potential again, uh, notify me because we're going to have a much more, should I say, engaging <laughs> conversation about that subject. Yeah, uh, I can actually participate. Well, I don't so think that's great. I really hope. Suffering. I really hope. Pardon. <laughs> I don't think your audience is suffering from the fact that you didn't know what to ask necessarily about the Maya. It's just that they have to listen to me more. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean. Now that you are getting familiar with this topic, we can come back around in a you know in a couple. Well, I think you prepped me excellent for for the next guests. So well, I think that's uh, the idea is I'm prepping the audience to really get into this in a big way. Now, obviously, hmm. that big way is is through the novel series, and then of course, if they're very uh, inquisitive, they'll want to you know have access to my bibliography. That's something I should mention is that um, as a uh, an inducement to come and subscribe to my list. Um, I will provide for you a free list of the best resources uh, mm. as bibliography is concerned for this topic. And that's obviously a combination of academic and independent research. So it's not, you know, for those of, of you who are still entirely skeptical of anything that comes out of academia, you can trust that I've more or less filtered through because I am also of that nature. <laughs> um, right. And, and, you know, we're, uh, as people can determine from today. Yeah, and they can determine for themselves what they want. But the point is, I've, I'll save them a lot of time <laughs> uh, in terms of what to look and, and what to get and then what sequence perhaps they could even read it in order to really build an understanding. So I will provide that to you, the listener, uh, if you go to mysticsofthemaya.com and um, hand over your email. Not only will you get that, of course, you'll get a content stream of interviews about this topic in general from all the different interesting people that, uh, that have contributed to my understanding, mm. as well as updates on the crowdfund when it'll happen. Mm. And there's also fun stuff that I'm doing. I'll do quizzes and that sort of thing that are viral in nature that'll um, not only give them something fun to test their knowledge, but also uh, immediately go viral as a part of that. So you're really supporting the process. Try and make it fun, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I wish you luck with uh, these projects. Thank you, Al. Um, Appreciate your support in this by uh, interviewing me uh, pre-publication, because I know that's not usually your format. Um, right. So I do appreciate that. Of course, uh, we can work on your trailer again to get it finished. Right. Ready. Yeah, from, from your mouth to Itzamanos Air. <laughs> there you go. It's some, <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you pulled that out of the house. 
<laughs> I impressed him there. Oh, there you go. Inside yeah, well, you know, that's an interesting story. That's an interesting story. Let's say that we were on overtime here. But Perfect. thanks a lot for, for just sharing and sharing with your unlimited uh, basin of knowledge on this topic. Oh, thank you. It's been fascinating uh, trip. I hope everybody's enjoyed it. And I hope they come back for more. Indeed. Okay, man. Take a well-deserved rest. See you around. Talk to you soon. Okay, ciao. Ciao, ciao. And that concludes our show today. I have to apologize for the poor sound, both on account of the guest and myself. Um, Hopefully it did not refrain you from catching the essence of what was said, and uh, we've taken measures to prevent this for future shows. I'll read you a brief quote from Popol Vuh. But let me first remind you that because we are at the worst algorithm now, we've <laughs> sunken down to, to that level. It means that the next time YouTube goes through and purges its channel, uh, we are probably up for deletion, as eventually will happen with all independent media channels, at least covering issues that matter. So... In order for us to prevent a forced divorce, I suggest, as a backup, if you're using YouTube, that you find us on any podcast platform. Just uh, go to the one you already use. If you don't use any podcast platform, you may want to look us up at Podbean. But you can also just Google us and then subscribe to any podcast you find there. Also, another option, especially if you're using YouTube, you may want to go to ODC, as they are called. I predict they will become the new tube, although the American government is trying to take them down by court cases, precisely because they're the only, in my view, the only alternative out there now that can eventually become a serious competition for YouTube, which is why they try to crush them. Because, as you all know, It's a joint effort to quench all independent voices and bring world society back to before the internet age where all media was under corporate control. So uh, that may happen, but until then, you'll find us at places like ODC or the podcast platforms, and we will expand to to other outlets too. Uh, But as long as you're using YouTube... If you haven't subscribed and you listen to more than one of our shows, then do subscribe. If you only listen to one, then it doesn't matter. But I suppose since you're listening now to part three of of this show, obviously you listen to more than one. So if you do, click subscribe. But even more importantly, click the bell. And if you are a subscriber, check that the bell is clicked because... Uh, the algorithm unsubscribes people, but more than that, they also uh, take the bell off on behalf of uh, customers in order to prevent too much growth for independent channels. So check that the bell is hit. And there's no risk for you hitting the bell because we do not issue new shows daily, so there will be no spam. The only thing that will happen is that the about two shows a month that we do release will come up in your feed and then you can determine whether you want to check it out or not. Uh, Do not let YouTube decide that on your behalf. So hit the bell, folks. Now, 
This is just a random quote, and, and Popol Vuh is, of course, a, a huge text, so a lot could be said, but I'll start with this. However many nations live in the world today, however many countless people, they all had but one dawn. The first men to be created and formed, they were endowed with intelligence. They succeeded in knowing all that there is in the world. When they looked, instantly they saw all that is around them, and they contemplated in turn the arc of heaven and the round face of the earth. Then the Creator said, They know all. What shall we do with them now? Let their sight reach only to that which is near. Let them see only a little of the face of the earth. Are they not by nature simple creatures of our making? Must they also be gods? That's it. Thanks for listening. For your support and to my team. I've been your host Al. Sincerely signing off. Peace in you. Who is number one?